Welcome. Thanks so much for coming to this year's Nancy Hillier Memorial Lecture, uh, The Long View on Environmental and Social Justice for Botany Bay. Uh, I'm John Carr. I will be hosting the lecture tonight. I'm also a senior lecturer with the Environment Society Group here at the University of New South Wales, which is within the School of Humanities and Languages. In addition to sponsoring this Nancy Hillier Lecture, along with the Environment Society Group. The annual lecture is also co-sponsored every year by Bayside Council. And this year, we're particularly happy to have the Global Water Institute at UNSW uh, sponsoring the event as well. So I'd like to thank them for their support. I know that probably many of us are starting to tire of having our interactions and communications mediated by programs like Zoom. Uh, but that said, I'm very grateful that we do have this technology to allow us to continue the lecture series, even during a pandemic. So by way of introduction, this lecture series and the values that it seeks to embody can really only be understood in reference to Nancy Hillier's work as a champion for social and environmental issues. This lecture series seeks to build upon her legacy and continue it, which to my mind is more important now than ever, and is growing in importance given the social and environmental challenges we all face, and particularly given the importance of Botany Bay community to Sydney and New South Wales as a whole. Those of you who have not heard of or did not know Nancy, she was a fearless and tireless advocate for her community, Botany Bay, and its environment. She was a really wonderful example how robust, essential, multi-scalar, meaningful, impactful advocacy so often grows from a really deep care and concern about a specific community or environment. Starting in the early 1970s, Nancy worked to combat air pollution that was coming from the ICI Orca plant in Botany Bay. Uh, this concern translated into a broader awareness of the deeper threats that her community was facing and the costs that was increasingly called upon to bear on behalf of all of Australia. And this led to such subsequent efforts as uh, in 1996, her effort to uh, oppose the proposed to turn Botany Bay into a deep water port with a coal loader. Uh, while the port did get put in, Nancy was successful in stopping the coal loader, which had a massive positive impact on that environment. Throughout the 1980s, she fought groundwater contamination by heavy industry in the region. Uh, in the 80s, she also fought the extension of the Sydney airport. Uh, even a year before she passed away in 2013, she was still working for environmental and social justice for her community, uh, specifically fighting the removal of the container cap at the port. Throughout, Nancy persevered in the face of almost unimaginable odds. She took on entities and businesses with almost unlimited funding and influence. She had her home attacked. She received anonymous death threats. And although she spoke truth to power, the strength of her vision and the importance of her voice was ultimately recognized. In 1985, Nancy was named the Botany Council Citizen of the Year. In 2006, she was awarded a Medal of the Order of Australia. And while it's really impossible to summarize a life as engaged, as powerful, and as influential as Nancy's, I would like to, to bring up one quote of hers, which to my mind really animates the spirit of this entire lecture series. She said, a country's wealth must be assessed by the living conditions 
of its people and not be judged by how many millionaires it can boast. So the rationale for this year's lecture um, was really to try to continue the spirit and the ideas that animated her work. Um, accordingly, my predecessor, Paul Brown, who is actually on this lecture today, much to my delight, along with the Environment Society Group in UNSW and Botany Council, worked to create a recurring funding stream for this annual lecture with the idea that it's essential to have an annual opportunity to really focus on different approaches to community participation and knowledge and engagement around social and environmental justice, and particularly with a continuing engagement with and focus on the broader Botany Bay community and environment. So overall, before I turn this over to more interesting people, the three goals of the, the lecture are to encourage and provide a platform for existing and upcoming Bayside community change makers, activists, and organizers, to create links between local, regional, statewide, national, and international environmental efforts, and to help forge connections between and among the scholarly community here at UNSW, the Bayside communities and environmental stakeholders engaged with the Botany Bay region. Now, uh, originally we had planned to do a much more community and activist focused lecture. Uh, the coronavirus threat really put an end to that, unfortunately. So we swung over to doing something that focuses much more on this third vision, which is encouraging and promoting engagement between the university and the community. Uh, overall, our thinking is that it's not necessarily kind to bring in community activists, uh, community leaders, uh, Aboriginal elders in a format which is designed really around looking into a computer camera like I'm doing right now, when the real focus is trying to bring community engagement to the fore. And so I've been so fortunate to have a group of, of experts and activists and researchers uh, here from the UNSW community who've been willing to step up and engage with a webinar style format uh, and really think about the ways we can engage in a communication and community of knowledge and change making between the broader Botany Bay communities and the University of New South Wales. That said, next year we will be focusing on more community activist and particularly Aboriginal elder experiences and voices. We're hoping to bring this one back home to Botany Bay. We believe that uh, Botany Town Hall's improvements should be completed by then. And I'm hoping in a year that we'll all be meeting in person with COVID in the rearview mirror and looking towards the future of activism and social change in Botany Bay. So this year's panel, We'll be focusing on a variety of different approaches to understanding environmental and social issues in Botany Bay. Uh, we have people coming from physical and environmental science, a biologist, urban design, law, environmental activism, environmental planning, and environmental history. Uh, so often we talk about how important it is to get people talking outside of the communities they're comfortable and familiar with, how essential it is to spur conversations across the university and beyond the university. And to my mind, this is really a wonderful opportunity to do exactly that this year. Um, relatedly, while magnificent work is done in universities general, and particularly here at UNSW, uh, the opportunity to make our work understandable to each other 
across disciplinary silos and, and to the community at large is also one of the big goals for this year's lecture and something I'm particularly excited about. And finally, knowing that we have a lot of people who, who aren't yet engaging in or would like to increase their activism, engagement and activism, this was an opportunity to really think about how we can build on, celebrate and create new connections between the university and those who want to engage in environmental and social change and activism in the Botany Bay community. So before we actually talk to our wonderful panel uh, of experts and activists and researchers here at UNSW, I have the great pleasure of introducing somebody who's become a mentor and a friend to me, Nancy's son, Clive Hillier, who's going to share his thoughts about the lecture, Nancy's legacy, and the essential work that needs to be done in Botany Bay and beyond. And Clive is actually going to sit in the chair right here and, and talk to you all directly. Thanks so much, John. My, my first um, exposure to Zoom, so as, as John mentioned earlier, um, we may have to make some allowances. I'd, I'd like to welcome everyone who's joined um, in to participate in the lecture this evening. Wonderful opportunity that I, I can speak to you for a brief period of time as I'm uh, one of two surviving members of mum's uh, family. My brother, unfortunately, couldn't uh, participate tonight, but it gives me the opportunity to um, give you a bit of a feel for some of the things that she was uh, she thought deeply about and felt deeply about. And um, I'd like to move on with a few thoughts of my own. Um, on behalf of my late mother and our family, we would like to extend our thanks to the University of New South Wales for their continuing support, which has been going on since the, uh, the lecture was instigated a number of years ago. Um, it's been a very solid foundation that's been built and, and, and moving forward as of tonight. Uh, I'd like to thank Bayside Council and staff for their continuing support. Particularly, I'd like to thank our esteemed and knowledgeable panel of guest speakers, which is absolutely wonderful, the, the, the breadth of knowledge that, that is there. The committee this year put together, which I participate in with John, uh, I'd like to thank uh, for their input and help as well. Um, their support has been greatly appreciated, as I know John appreciates as well. John in particular has applied every effort to be across the history behind the lecture and my late mother's lifelong endeavours to see her beloved botany, and in particular Botany Bay, cared for and protected from the ravages of industry and overdevelopment. This year's lecture has been particularly challenging. COVID-19 has seen our initial plans being forced to change dramatically. From a more traditional lecture with guests and presenters in one room, hosted with all the trimmings at a newly renovated Botany Town Hall, to the now commonplace Zoom-style meeting, which is a, a bit of an initiation for everybody. This was a tough decision to take, but I believe this has proven for the best Severe doubts were overshadowing the, overshadowing the night actually continuing should the COVID-19 pandemic have continued and not been well managed. This was a safe and well thought through plan which ensured and guaranteed the continuance of the lecture. I cannot speak highly enough of the way John has handled this process and laid the groundwork for the continuance of the annual lecture. I would also like to extend thanks to the outgoing uh, Nancy Hilly Memorial Lecture Facilitator and, and um, founder, Paul Brown. Paul was a close and trusted colleague of Nancy who showed her great support and respect over many years of her life. After mum's passing, he ensured the continuance of her legacy through the lecture series. She would have indeed been very proud of both Paul and our John's efforts to keep the flag raised high. However, the fight goes on and she would not have been proud of many issues that we have to confront. Um, 
in particular things like the excessive and poorly planned um, overdevelopment being constructed in the area. You know, high density, high rise that now dominates the landscape has been pushed through no matter what. She would have been devastated by the demolition of the General Motors landmark tower at the corner of Heffern Road and Bunurong Road, Pagewood, to make way from massive residential and commercial towers. You know, the, it's, it represented a major um, corporation, but it was a, an icon in the area, a particularly architecturally pleasing structure that everyone knew was there and had been there for many, many years and probably outlast the buildings that have been uh, put there in its place. She would have also been very distressed by the proposed cruise ship terminal going into the beautiful Yarra Bay. Um, hopefully the terminal is terminal and that COVID has taken care of that in the meantime. Another issue that's been in the news only today is Sydney Water's blatant pollution of the Mill Pond, which was part of Sydney's original water supply, haven to native plants and wildlife, and they want to use it or continue to use it as an emergency sullage pond in the, in the case of emergency flooding and overflows, which is it's just a sheer disgrace. And I just can't make enough people aware of what, what's proposed to happen there and to, so people can try to oppose it wherever possible. My mother would have also been particularly disappointed by the demise of public transport with reduced and restricted services to our area, whilst billions have poured into the light rail and road construction elsewhere. This is in spite of more people being crammed into our beloved love botany and the surrounds. It's now seven years since our mother passed away. Her physical being is no longer with us, but her achievements are all around us. Much of what we enjoy today, be it parklands, preserved historical buildings, or tighter controls over industrial polluters can be attributed to her tireless and selfless work over many years, which has gone beyond the grave. I've been recently advised that there's a small park in, um, in Botany that's been dedicated to my mother. It was originally named Hillier Park in Wilson Street, Botany. We were concerned it wasn't called Nancy Hillier Park because she was known as Nancy Hillier, and Hillier seemed terribly formal and not particularly personal. So I'm very glad to have been advised recently that uh, Bayside of, uh, Council have confirmed that it will now be renamed Nancy Hillier Park and there'll be more in, in local news regarding that and about an official opening as well. So anyone who can come along will be most, most welcome. I'd like to welcome you again to the lecture and hope you will continue to support Nancy's battle for a safe, sustainable and beautiful environment. And I really appreciate this opportunity tonight and I'll hand you back to John and our wonderful panel we've got to uh, address you tonight. Thank you. better or for worse, we will not have all of our, our panelists sitting in this chair. They're, they'll all be reporting in from their, their own workspaces and home spaces. Um, just to give a, 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 just a quick overview of the format for tonight, each of our panelists will present their work, research, and thoughts about the future of Botany Bay for approximately 10 minutes. Um, if they go over, you will get to see me waving my hands and letting them know. Uh, we will then come back to have a discussion amongst our panelists after the final panels, and we want your questions. Uh, if you know Zoom, you know this already. If you don't, this is a chance to learn it. There is a chat function, and I'll be monitoring as, as will the panelists. We want to hear your questions. When we come back to have the discussion, we'll engage with those questions, but also feel free to address um, the panel um, you turning on your, your microphones. Um, and so after what I expect to be an engaging conversation, we will adjourn at nine o'clock. Time permitting, 
we will likely take a break around 8 or 10 after the final panelist has spoken uh, during the formal presentation to take a little break and avoid Zoom burnout. But otherwise, I, I'm very delighted to introduce the panel, and particularly our first speaker, who's Ian Terrell. Uh, Ian Terrell is a historian notable for his work on transitional history. He was a Scientia Professor of History at UNSW until his retirement in July 2012, and he's now an Emeritus Professor of History at UNSW. He's the author of 12 books, including one of my favorites, uh, which deals with the Cook's River, River Dreams, the People and Landscape of the Cook's River, um, and an absolute asset to, to tonight and, and a wonderful person to start off. Ian, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, John, um, to be asked to, to, to give this um, uh, introductory talk. I actually did meet Nancy Hillier a couple of times during the agitation over the expansion of Sydney Airport, because I was involved in that in a, uh, for, for a short time in the 1980s and again in the 1990s. So I was very impressed by her and uh, I'm just delighted to be able to pay tribute to her by giving this introductory talk. I wrote a book called River, River Dreams, even though my previous work was in American history and transnational history. I'm perhaps best known for my work in uh, transnational history, John. My Cook's River study did seem a bit of a peculiar turn from that, but I had written in environmental history before. I am a resident of the area, and uh, I have been an aficionado of the Cook's River for many years, also at Botany Bay to some extent. My Cook's River study is of importance to Botany Bay. Practically everything on the river was either part of Botany Bay history or has impacted upon Botany Bay and its development. The population of the Cook's River Valley was historically very mixed, going from mostly Anglo-Saxon with relatively high status and aspiration in the 1830s to 19, early 1900s to a working class and an ethnic composition in the mid 20th century. By then with a predominantly working class population and lower educational levels, it was a fairly typical example of what I would call the social geography of class. Everything got dumped on the area and it's uh, somewhat underprivileged people. My study included a succession of pollution impacts from animal waste and domestic sewerage in the late 19th century to industrial, and particularly since 1945, air pollution and oral pollution from Kingsford Smith Airport. I document also the ecological impacts of the dams across the river, the canalization projects from 1886, and the resculpting of the bay and northern foreshores for Kingsford Smith Airport and the current port. These were major interventions in the environment. They changed it and the source of huge controversy in Sydney before the 1970s, and obviously beyond that uh, uh, too. The Cooks River was also a place with sustained environmental agitation from residents groups, scientists, and individuals from the 1880s to the early 2000s. Neither the Parramatta River, nor the Georges, nor the Nepean have this sustained history of agitation. Cooks River Valley was at the center of early 20th century industrial development in Sydney, and therefore it was central to botany, to uh, uh, environmental agitation as well at that time. And it made a, made a big contribution to the pollution of the bay. 
the, uh, the industry in the lower section of the river. For scientists, perhaps the most interesting connection is the importance of that river as a source of pollution for the bay. Birch et al.'s 1996 study shows that pollution of the lower course of the Cooks River and its impact on Botany Bay was far greater for the northern part of the basin than the much bigger Georges River. Botany Bay was disproportionately affected by what went into the Cooks River. So that's the kind of background, the historical background. Um, today, and in, in recent years, except perhaps for the airport, many of these immediate pollution problems for the Cooks River Valley have been resolved or at least mitigated. The Bay Area as a whole is no longer a poorer area, expensive to live in in some parts, certainly in the Cooks River Valley, and sought after for real estate. The main obstacle to prospects for environmental justice is the still accumulating damage to the physical environment and especially the expansion of the airport and, and uh, vehicular traffic by West Connects and the M6 and all of the construction work that has gone on in regard to those and the building of high-rise development in the area. Dealing with these problems is difficult due to the fragmentation of interests. Is the Bay a unit at all? perhaps physically, but it's not clearly so from an environmental perspective. For a social movement, attachment to the area in question is key. People like Nancy Hillier and Bernie Clark, who's also a past from us, were important in having a Botany Bay vision. Today, we have to ask, is that vision still there? In the past, before 1950, boating and commercial and pleasure fishing and other water sports drew the rivers and bay together as a unit recognizable to citizens. Now these activities and visions are segmented, partly due to the physical alteration of the bay, those long runways, for example, and the port extension. It's not clear what the fishermen, the amateurs now, beachgoers, cyclists, etc., have in common and how they can contribute to a collective sense of attachment to Botany Bay as worth defending. Industry and air transport have contributed to alienation through pollution and noise. The northern and western sides of the basin have heavy through traffic and congestion, not conducive to a calm experience of nature. These circumstances have encouraged segmentation, segmented detachment, not attachment. Resegmentation, to the extent there is attachment, it is a series of recreational spaces. But these activities have little to do with one another. Jet skis, swimmers, walkers, boaters, fishers, team sports. For example, hockey is played uh, fairly close to the entrance of the Cook River. Cafes, parks, and so on, picnicking, all these activities go on. It's a lively area. But today there are quite a few different interests among different groups of residents. For example, Cronulla, etc., versus Marrickville, very different socioeconomic areas and versus botany or Randwick. The catchment concept is useful for bringing communities together, but only if we impress upon people how the catchment has changed and how its uniting characteristics have become obscured. Hence the importance of history, for example, in the Cooks River. The current wetlands and water, water courses up to Randwick were once part of the Cooks River system. They fed into it near the mouth. That was before the establishment of Sydney Airport and the expansion of Sydney Airport. That's forgotten now. The Eastern Cooks River catchment of botany has been severed from the valley 
and replaced by the tarmacs of Kingsford Smith Airport. That, that produces a kind of detachment of that area as an experience of landscape from the Cooks River Valley and the detachment of the latter from Botany Bay. Threats can bring disparate areas into alignment, as with the expansion of the airport, which can bring wealthy Cronolorites and poorer inner cities people together to form community of interest, but only temporary ones. A shared history would be more positive, but this it's, it's, a, it's more important finding what it is that holds Botany Bay together as a subject. I would suggest the human valuation of the area is key, and that depends on the intensity and extent of human attractions and interactions. And there's a need to measure that. What are the networks of attachment? We need cross-disciplinary study of this, drawing on oral history and surveys of residents. And we need to publicize the history of the area. So I've covered the first two sections of the questions we were asked to cover. We've also been asked to comment on our research and how what my thoughts might be on the existing and future partnerships between UNSW and Botany Bay. There's actually a long history to this, to partnerships, with both political and economic and, and academic pitfalls. It's probably forgotten by a lot of people, but in the 1970s, there was something called the Botany Bay Project, started by Noel Buckland, with a, with a very uh, assiduous researcher, Dan Huon Coward, who wrote a book on the industrialization and the pollution in the Botany Bay area. All this was influenced by the pioneer environmental historian, Sir Keith Hancock. But that project fell afoul of, of disputes between the state government and the federal government because it was started during the Whitlam government period and uh, the new government after 1975 did not approve of this work. It was white-handed in much the same way as the Cooks River environmental study of 1976 was, which had also been started with Whitlam government funding and was stymied by the uh, existing Liberal uh, Country Party, as it was, I think, then government in New South Wales. Subsequently, environmental studies and science and technology studies at UNSW in the 1990s carried the torch, led by Gavin McDonnell and Paul Brown. There are, there are academic uh, pitfalls as well as political uh, pitfalls. Meredith Professor John Black, the UNSW, and engineering tried to draw people together in the period between 2004 and 2007. But academic specialization encourages us to look to fellow workers in similar fields outside the designated uh, geographical area. Creating Botany Bay as a focal point would require institutionalized commitment to reward academics for local work, I suspect. So I've tried to uh, limit my remarks and to address them to the three key questions that John Carr has put for us. What is our research? What are the, what are the impacts of that research and its relationship to social justice? And what are the possibilities for collaborative work from UNSW? There are difficulties in all of these matters, but Botany Bay is a fascinating area and uh, I very much appreciate being part of this panel and I think that Botany Bay has enormous opportunities for environmental historians to do important work. That is a, a wonderful overview of a lot of the big issues I know that have sort of 
literally flowed down the Cooks River towards the Botany Bay region and a lot of the challenges we face. And I particularly love the historical contextualization you give for, in many ways, the ongoing difficulties that we encounter, which to my mind is a great setup uh, for our next panelist, Anne-Marie Kreller. Anne-Marie is an activist researcher, social scientist, and PhD candidate who's been involved with urban cooperative housing in Sydney for over 20 years. Her research in Botany Bay examines the value of coastal areas, perceptions of sea level rise, and fair adaptation policy undertaken with people living and working around the bay. She's currently undertaking a PhD through the Scientia Scholarship Program at UNSW, where she's examining the role of social movements in sea level rise adaptation policy in the Central Coast. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for your time this evening. Hi, everyone. Thank you, John. Hey! I am going to attempt to share my screen. <laughs> Wish me luck. All right, hang on a minute. God, Zoom meetings. All right, thank you, John. I shall start. Once nicknamed the rat bag of botany for her tireless environmental activism, Nancy Hillier said, this world was only loaned to us, then we pass it on to future generations. I'm a climate justice researcher activist, which means I am also a fellow rat bag. Anyone interested in climate change in Australia must go through a roller coaster of emotions, watching decades of political paralysis. Tonight I will talk about Botany Bay's vulnerability to sea level rise, how my research attempts to facilitate a conversation about justice between researchers and policymakers, and finally my thoughts on partnerships between UNSW and Botany Bay. A recent study from the Bureau of Meteorology and Monash University found that coastal inundation will become a more frequent phenomenon around the Sydney coastline up to and beyond 2100. And this area includes Botany Bay. I became interested in the effects of sea level rise on Botany Bay after reading a vulnerability assessment by the Sydney Coastal Councils Group, CSIRO, and University of the Sunshine Coast a study situated in the entire Sydney region. The study found that Botany Bay is highly exposed to sea level rise because of low-lying topography and development. Adaptive capacity in the study was indicated by education, household wealth, home ownership, percentage of population that speaks a language other than English, and internet access. And based on these figures, the authors concluded that Botany Bay had low levels of adaptive capacity. Now I understand that assessing vulnerability is meant to be a starting point for conversations between researchers and local governments. And during my honours year at UNSW Sydney, I undertook a study examining community engagement with sea level rise adaptation in Botany Bay. My research took place in 2016, and some of you may remember this is the year when a large East Coast low and erosion damaged parts of the New South Wales coast, including Botany Bay's foreshore area. Situated within climate justice research, my study sought to evaluate fair sea level rise adaptation from the perspective of council staff and people living and working around Botany Bay. At that time, the bay was managed by City of Botany Bay and Rockdale Councils. And despite the challenges of engaging with people over a, quite a large geographic area, my study found that the environment and particularly the foreshore area is highly valued for a sense of recreation, community and cohesion. 
I also found that Botany Bay policymakers find it challenging to talk to people about sea level rise because, let's face it, it's a scary issue. I didn't even want to talk about it tonight. <laughs> it's quite difficult to mention. I conducted a survey asking people how they valued Botany Bay, their sea level rise beliefs, and their views of what fair adaptation would look like. And from these results, I created four typologies, which facilitated conversation between policymakers and communities. These four groups were younger community-minded women from culturally diverse communities, two groups of middle-aged residents who valued work-life balance, and an older group of climate denialers, deniers who enjoyed the outdoors. And I gave these groups names. I called them the uncertain community-minded women, the concerned solo flyers, alarmed work-life balances, and disengaged male baby boomers. The first group, the concerned solo flyers. They really valued the housing afford affordability in Botany Bay, the lifestyle, the beach, the community networks. They felt personally concerned about sea level rise and they want to be involved in adaptation policy. The next group, the alarmed work-life balances, value the proximity of Botany Bay to the city. They garden in their spare time and they were the most alarmed group about sea level rise. They also indicated they want to be involved in adaptation policy. The next group, the uncertain community-minded women were culturally diverse, like to volunteer and have a good relationship with council. But when I asked them, they really felt quite uncertain about the effects of sea level rise in Botany Bay, like when it would happen and whether or not you know, what time frame it was going to happen to Botany Bay, for example. Finally, the last group, the disengaged male baby boomers, they did a lot of outdoor activity. But strangely, they felt that they didn't want to get involved with adaptation policy and they weren't likely to believe in sea level rise. There were more deniers in that group. Overall, I found that the Botany Bay environment is important for quality of life for urban working people and something which Nancy understood during her years of activism. Diversity of engagement is important and it must be based on how people value their area, their sea level rise beliefs and their views of fair engagement. For those of you who may not be familiar, Honours is quite an intense and rapid research year. During my research, I sampled through established resident organisations in the Bay but most were situated around Rockdale Council and I felt I didn't reach enough people living around Botany and I didn't reach enough younger people renting. I often reflect on the transient nature of the Sydney property market and how rent has become hard to reach justice communities with respect to climate adaptation policy. And finally, I'd like to address the question that John asked me to think about, which was about partnerships between UNSW and Botany Bay. I took an undergraduate degree at UNSW in the social sciences, or what I now call the not job ready degree, as a very mature age student. When John asked me to reflect on future partnerships between UNSW and Botany Bay, it was impossible for me to put aside the transformation currently taking place in Australian universities. I fear for the hollowing out of the humanities and social sciences which may discourage like-minded students like myself from working at the interface of social environmental justice and change. 
I'm currently a Scienti PhD student at UNSW, and I'm looking at an interdisciplinary analysis of sea level rise adaptation in the Central Coast area. In my view, justice scholarship must involve interdisciplinary partnerships because the social sciences is a way to critically analyse governance and speak to people about climate change in a way that means something to them. I also envisage partnerships between researchers and policymakers, such as council in Botany Bay, that are based on a mutual understanding about the context each works in. Thank you, that is the end of my presentation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Anne-Marie. I mean, it's lovely having this kind of contemporary work around how shifting opinions are having this direct impact on the way we, we plan for such a, a major environmental challenge. Um, <clears throat> that said, our next uh, expert comes from a slightly different disciplinary background and one that in many ways is, is aligned with my experience before entering academia when I was a public interest and civil rights attorney. Emma is one of the uh, unsung heroes of UNSW. She's the director of the Kingsford Legal Center of the UNSW Faculty of Law. The Kingsford Legal Center is committed to social justice and providing access and reform of the legal system. And they provide quality legal services to the Botany Bay Randwick communities and promote excellence in clinical legal education while fostering a critical analysis of the justice system. This is one of those amazing things that UNSW provides that I don't think anybody talks enough about. Providing accessible legal services to people in need, particularly in the botany community, is one of those things that simply is irreplaceable. And, and I asked Emma to come in because I do think there's such an interesting link between the environmental challenges that a community like Botany Bay faces and the social challenges. And you rarely get uh, as close a front row seat to those social challenges as you do when you're providing uh, legal services to people in need. So thank you so much for your time tonight, Emma. Thanks, John. I'll take it away. And um, good evening, everyone. Thanks for the opportunity to talk tonight about the work of Kingston Legal Centre and celebrate the wonderful life and achievements of Nancy Hillier. Um, I think we would all probably, I would reject the label expert, hero and go for rat bag with probably the rest of the panel too. Um, but I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land on which Kingsford Legal Centre works, the Gadigal and Bidjigal clans of the Eora Nation. Pay my respect to elders past and present, and I'm really heartened to hear that next year, hopefully in a post-COVID world, we can put Aboriginal voices and Aboriginal elders in terms of this story front and centre. Um, I'm the social justice outlier in terms of this, but it's very interesting to hear in way, the ways in which community environmental concerns are just completely intertwined. And I'm happy to say that I think for a long time, lawyers have not had environmental engagement. And yet I think anyone who lived through the summer of um, last year in Sydney um, knows now that, you know, climate and environment is a call to action for everyone. 
And Kingsford Legal Centre is a community centre that works in the local um, area in Botany and Ramwick community in the Bayside Council area. And as human rights lawyers, we're taking that call to action really seriously. So I'm really honoured to talk a little bit about activism, um, rat bagism, and how we can start conversations and work together with each other. Um, Kingsford Legal Centre was born out of the activism of UNSW law students and staff members in the early 80s, and it was really born out of a desire to change the way in which the law serves the community and to advocate for change so that it feels appropriate that we hear tonight um, and reflect on issues such as community activism. We really strongly believe in terms of our work, the community are the experts about what needs to be done. And that's really clear from Nancy's legacy that we need to listen to the voices in our community. We need to empower our community to speak to power and decision-making, and we need to have the community inform our work and the direction of the work. And I just wanna echo Anne-Marie's wonderful comments about you know, the future of um, interdisciplinary work and the humanities and the university environment, because all that is very time intensive. It takes a long time to work in a community and to build trust and to really listen and to have an informed approach. And so I think um, there's lots of challenges, of course, in the environment um, in which we work, um, putting even a pandemic aside. And so hopefully, as people who work and are lucky enough to work in a university, we can be part of that conversation and bridge to, the, to, the, to our local community. Um, but I'm rabbiting on a little bit. So I'll just tell you a little bit about KLC and then talk a little bit about some of the connections and challenges I think we see. Um, we work in a range of areas such as housing, financial hardship, employment, discrimination law. But, you know, drawing on the, the history of the centre, we really have a systemic approach. And so we want to change unfair systems and practices. We want to change the way in which law works for communities. And that's a really clear legacy um, of Nancy's as well about changing laws and mechanisms that don't reflect our um, community interests, that don't protect um, the environment and the context in which we live. We're also international human rights lawyers. And the thing I love about Kingsford is what a client might talk to us about in botany um, can make its way all the way to the um, UN in international human rights work. And we are currently, um, you know, uh, finalising um, Australia's international human rights report card um, called the Universal Periodic Review. And as, as part of that, we talk to the social and economic challenges for our local community. So it can be a very powerful voice. Um, we work really hard to provide access to justice, and I'll talk a little bit about how that inter intersects with some of the challenges for the community. And we're very much embedded in our community. So we are situated, and as I sit now in you know, NSW, I've got lawyers working around me providing advice to our local community. But usually um, in a non-pandemic world, we're actually based in our community. We talk to people, we have cups of tea, we provide legal advice in all different types of places. My lawyers um, talk and engage and work with the community um, day in, day out. Um, we hope to do that again soon, but at the moment, like everyone else, we're adapting to this new environment. So as this kind of um, social justice uh, rat bag on the panel, um, I just wanted to think about the connections between social justice and the expertise here on the panel and our connection with um, the environment in which we work with. And so what are the challenges for the activists, the change makers of today and tomorrow? I think it's really clear that um, 
the diversity of our local community and the preservation of our communities and connections is really under, under threat and challenge. Um, for Kingsford Legal Centre, it's impossible to escape issues such as housing affordability, the sustainability of public housing, which brings so much diversity to our community. Um, and sadly, um, we're frequently working with people who've lived their whole lives in this community, but who are facing really huge housing challenges, which means that they may not be able to stay in the community. This is an everyday story. We also face really bureaucratic challenges, which are born out of the real lack of housing and lack of affordable housing in Sydney that Anne-Marie just touched on. And it becomes increasingly difficult for people to prove their connection to the local area. And if we think about how do we get an invest, invested community in their local area, how do we get people engaged in these really long-term um, environmental challenges, community challenges, we need them to have a connection to the area. And often our connection to this area gets um, reduced to a very reductionist list-ticking exercise about what's essential to you living there. Um, we were recently advocated for a person who moved into the local area as a baby um, in the 1960s and yet was facing eviction and his connection to the community was questioned. So these things happen every day and we know that um, there's critical links between safe, secure and appropriate housing for health and wellbeing, but also for the wellbeing and engagement of the community and the ability to sustain community campaigns in terms of activism. So while safe, affordable housing is very good and important for families, for the educational outcomes of children, it's really critical for the next generations of community activists that people feel some connection to where they live and that they can plan ahead and feel that they're going to live in this community for a long time. So we still help many families facing really real housing issues such as overcrowding, dangerous accommodation, or facing eviction. And unfortunately, the pandemic has not put a hold on that. We also deal with high levels of people in very unsafe or insecure housing or who are homeless. And so this is a massive challenge for the complexity and diversity of our area. Um, as I just touched on, um, we climate change and the impact of climate change on the attainment of rights is really critical. And we've just recently framed this in our human rights report as a human rights challenge. And, you know, for us as lawyers, we need to reach out in an interdisciplinary way to some of the expertise that's here tonight to work out how can we work collectively. I mean, lawyers have traditionally been very siloed in that way. And I'm a human lawyer and you're an environmental lawyer. I think we all would agree that's all one and the same now. Um, we're concerned about the impact of the changing climate on our communities and that it will exa exacerbate issues such as um, socioeconomic disadvantage. Uh, we're really worried that the impact of climate change will fall hardest on some of our oldest communities. We're also particularly worried about the ability of public housing to adapt and change to the changing climate and how people will access areas such as safe public space in a warming climate. How can we access public space such as libraries with air conditioning? It's particularly an issue for people who are homeless. Sustainability of energy is a really real issue for people now who can't afford to properly cool or heat their home. We're also worried that this is an intergenerational issue and so that the children of today are going to be impacted by the decisions and the activism um, we make now. I just wanted to also um, highlight that, you know, in a perfect world, there wouldn't be a Kingsford Legal Centre. We shouldn't need lawyers to help 
our local communities advocate around their issues. But increasingly, government decision making today is very complicated. It has lots of barriers to people um, sharing their views. And it replicates some of the concerns around the digital divide, which is even more exacerbated by um, COVID-19. As I've touched on, we believe that communities themselves are best placed to respond to government proposals and we need to keep working about making sure those proposals are clear, transparent, are accessible. Um, and where that's not possible, we work really hard to empower and amplify and assist our community to actively engage directly with decision makers. Um, everyone would know in that current era that's a challenge and we're faced with things such as short timeframes, impenetrable language, uh, lack of real and meaningful consultation. And so KLC works really hard on that model of talking to our community, um, providing voices of the community direct to government and trying to think outside the square and really listen hard. And sometimes, you know, the answer that the community want isn't the question that the government has posed. So having a really long-term view about long-term systemic change is really essential. Um, and also working with the community to really understand their issues and how they want to frame the issue is really important. Um, I just wanted to reflect, I didn't want to talk too much about the pandemic because we're all a little bit over that, but um, this year has really laid bare the strength and resilience of our local community. And also I want to pay tribute to the local community organisations that we work with. Um, I'm sure during lockdown, um, everybody had situations where um, we were concerned about whether someone was being looked after or had access to food, um, had someone checking in on them. And I, I'm really proud of our local community organisations about the mobilisation they did around that. And it's that's community work. That's not the work of government. Um, this year, we've all had to think about how we work in our local um, community. And we've had to rework um, the face-to-face -face relationships we've had. And I think Really, we've been able to do that because of the strength of our community work and relationships that, um, that we had at the start of the year. So in conclusion, I guess, what does this mean for activists and change makers and rat bags? Um, what lies ahead in a period of disruption and instability and uncertainty? Because it's really clear that the pandemic is going to have ongoing impacts, especially for people who um, experience, you know, um, socio and economic disadvantage. We're really concerned about that. Um, we don't know. Um, the challenges ahead mean we need to work together collectively. We need to foster the activists of tomorrow, which hopefully this is part of a conversation with. And we need to emerge together through these challenges. Um, I think we also need to think about how can we support the collective effort when there's very strong forces of individualization. And, you know, the pandemic has exacerbated that kind of individualized approach to things. And sadly, we're not all in the same room together and um, having um, a, a discussion face to face. So how can we resist the individual and the isolation of this process? And I think part of it is like finding new connections, ways of working together, new alliances and friendships. And I think that's why tonight is such a wonderful opportunity to kind of redraw and think about how we can build on this wonderful legacy. Thanks for having me tonight. Thanks so much, Emma. And, and you're making me realize that rat bag is, it might be an aspirational status to, to, to seek to attain. I, I'm, that's now with, within my sights of what I'm trying to, to achieve. And thank you for the work that the KLC does. So <clears throat> I think it's gonna be an interesting move to 
pivot from some of the pressures on population diversity that we see amongst the human communities in and around Botany Bay to some of the pressures on biological communities, which to my mind is very much one of the topics that our next expert or, or aspiring rat bag, I won't speak on your behalf, Sue Allen Egan uh, deals with. She's an associate professor at the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences and the Center of Marine Science and Innovation at UNSW. Her research experience spans the areas of marine microbiology, ecology, biotechnology, with a current focus on understanding the role of microorganisms for the health and function of marine plants and animals. And she's also the vice president of the Australian New Zealand Marine Biotechnology Society. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you, John. Thanks again for the kind introduction. Um, so I'm gonna spend the next 10 minutes uh, really changing gear. I'd like to share with you some of my thoughts on how we can better understand protect and benefit from marine biodiversity in Botany Bay. But before I get started, I wanna make a few acknowledgements. Firstly, I'd like to reiterate what Emma said and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land and sea country of Botany Bay and the land on which UNSW Kensington campus now stands from which I'm speaking to you all tonight. I'd like to also extend the acknowledgement um, to the Gatmay Rangers and the work that they do to protect the bay and I'm grateful for their increasing collaboration with CMSI researchers. So while today I'm really only gonna present a very small snapshot of the work CMSI and UNSW staff and students are doing, um, I'd like to acknowledge the very long history of the work in Botany Bay by many UNSW scientists. And of course, there's, this can't be done without funding. So there's a variety of different funding sources that have contributed to work over the years. And I've just listed on the slide some of those that have specifically contributed to some of the things I'll talk about now. So where to start? If you've been fortunate enough to stick your head under the water, you'll have already seen the opportunity, have had the opportunity to witness some of the most amazing sponge gardens and kelp forests that support diverse fish life and invertebrate communities in the Bay. And when I wanted to look at how I was going to present the talk today, um, I came across this interview in the leader with UNSW researcher, John Turnbull, where he highlights some of the key examples of Botany Bay's unique marine life through his wonderful photographs. And you'll see many of them in the slides today. Um, this includes the threatened pink coral um, for which the largest Sydney population can be found within Botany Bay. Um, this really unusual looking Bear Island anglerfish, which was first discovered in Botany Bay and it was only described in 2014. And while we don't often think of hard corals in places other than tropical reefs, several can actually be found in the Botany Bay area, including this individual McNeil's coral, which was found in Botany Bay uh, near Bear Island and is estimated to be over about 300 years old. And of course, the weedy sea dragon that's endemic to Southern Australia. And many of you may have had the opportunity to see these wonderful creatures while diving uh, near Bear Island or Canal. Um, and while the populations found in Botany Bay are amongst the largest in the Sydney region, they are at their higher limit um, of their northern range. And there is some concern that this population may be under decline. So these are just a few examples of the larger interesting creatures we see in Botany Bay. However, uh, as John said, given by background, I'm taking the liberty to highlight that biodiversity you can't see directly with your naked eye, but is nevertheless really important. And that is the uh, microbial diversity or unseen majority. 
a fun fact is that every mill of seawater contains around a million viruses, a 10 million viruses, sorry, a million bacteria, a thousand fungi and a thousand microalgae. And one of my colleagues did a cheeky back of the envelope uh, calculation and noted that in that same mill of seawater, there is very few whales, arguing that these popular animals are perhaps getting an unfair amount of public attention. But whether it's big or small, diversity is really worth preserving. Um, it is important for ecosystem functioning. It's key to successful fisheries and recreation industries. And biodiversity is fundamental to those new biodiscoveries and biotechnologies, which may be the new drug to prevent COVID-19. But unfortunately, biodiversity is under threat. Um, and we've heard a lot about the threat threats that are occurring in and around the Bay Area, from urbanization to climate change. Um, and what I wanted to share with you now is some of the ways in which specifically UNSW researchers and scientists are working in Botany Bay to address this question of preserving biodiversity. And when I was thinking about what we're doing, uh, which is a lot of things in that space, um, I came up with four essential activities. And I'd like to just share one example from each of them. Firstly, we have discovering and monitoring biodiversity. And this is really important because we essentially don't know if and what needs to be done until we start taking a look. Um, UNSW researchers have had a long history of working alongside fisheries, non-profits, councils and community groups to monitor marine biodiversity in the Bay from the very small to the very large. And it's important groundwork that needs to be done to understand not just what the biodiversity is, but how it's responding through time and under various pressures. An example that I wanted to give you now is um, work that's been done over the last few years, which is part of our larger marine microbes initiative, where we're collecting and analysing samples, in particular in Botany Bay from two sites, Tarrant Point and Bear Island. Um, and we're analysing those microbes that are associated with the water, the sediment, sponges, seagrass, seaweeds, etc. Um, and the results so far are showing that uh, these microbes can respond to environmental disturbances, such as major storm events. Um, they show some seasonal patterns and can be very regional or host specific. However, what we still don't really know, we have a lack of understanding about now, is these how these patterns play out over a longer period of time. Um, the second major area that we're working in is communication and engagement. As many of the other speakers said, for me, this is also really important because ultimately we want people to care about this and it's not possible for them to care if they don't know about it or have any sense of vested interest in what um, they're meant to be caring for. Now, outreach activities and community engagement is increasing activity for uh, UNSW marine biologists. And much of what we do is naturally suited to the growing field of citizen science. Also, more and more of this area of our work is underpinned by growing strength in the social sciences, and that's helping us to inform public policy and environmental awareness programs. For example, a recent graduate, John Turnbull, um, completed his PhD determining the various drivers of marine stewardship, and he conducted several of his surveys in and around the Bay region. Thirdly, we have questioning and fundamental research. And I would say that while research scientists such as myself are increasingly driven to do applied or translational research, I really hope we don't lose sight of the importance of fundamental work. And that's because we can't really fix what we don't fully understand. Um, 
one particular area of fundamental research re relevant to the Botany Bay that I personally work on um, is an attempt to try and understand the mechanisms behind this bleaching disease of the seaweed Delicia pulchra. This is a small red alga that is common to the Botany Bay area. And over the years, this work has discovered that disease is a result of a combination of both environmental stress, so higher sea water temperatures and a bacterial infection. And finally, we have protection and restoration. And essentially this is taking the science into direct action because we cannot change the directional loss of biodiversity um, or change people's attitudes towards it if we don't somehow act. Now, there's been a lot of work in this area by uh, CMSI researchers at UNSW, and I only want to give you a couple, two examples. Um, increasing pressure on natural fish stocks and previous habitat destructions is one of the drivers for the artificial reef work that's headed by Ian Southers here. Among a number of other projects Ian works on in the Bay Area, he uses re these reef balls seen in this image to create new artificial reefs. Um, these images here show how successful this approach has been. And with about nine months, you can see in the image that these reefs start to begin to resemble the diversity seen in natural reef systems. And importantly, their work shown that these reefs can become self-sustaining and the fish found around these reefs are not just simply um, stolen from a want of a better term from nearby natural reefs. And the last example I wanna to give to you is the restoration of crayweed, which is one of the center's success stories. Uh, just very briefly, Phyllospora camosa or crayweed is an important habitat for crayfish, as the name suggests, but also other marine life. However, it disappeared from the Sydney region sometime in the 1980s, possibly due to low water quality. Um, restoration attempts started almost 10 years ago now with very small scale trials and several experiments to optimise the process and monitor success have continued. And now Operation Crayweed, as it's called, has been rolled out across about 70 kilometres of Sydney's coastline. And this includes a current site being restored in Cornell with the generous support of Tom Breen. And finally, we're asked to comment on our vision for the future. For me, I think this is fairly simple and perhaps not unique. I'd like to see this marine biodiversity that we still have in Botany Bay preserved for the future generations. And from a perspective of a research scientist, I see this means doing more or less the same thing as just described. However, um, and importantly, while I presented those ideas in a linear fashion, it's of course an iterative process where ideally each of those activities informs the other. And this needs to have a collaboration because no one person or one group or one organization can do all of these things on their own. And um, like many things, to be successful, there needs to be some long-term vision and investment. But I'd like to end on a high note and say, I am hopeful um, that we will get there. So that's all I have for you. Thank you so much. I both feel smarter than I was before and overawed with just the, the richness of, of the biodiversity in Botany Bay. And yeah, I, I really love the way you tie this into the, the challenges around diversity, both through human communities and these biological communities. Thank you. Um, our next uh, presenter and expert is James Wyrick. Um, James is the director of the Masters of Urban Development and Design program at UNSW. 
He's well known as a world authority on Walter Burley Griffin and Marion Mahoney Griffin, the architects behind the master plan for Canberra. And prior to joining UNSW in 91, uh, James was the head of landscape architecture at RMIT University, and he had various consultancies in Sydney, Melbourne, and Canberra, including work on the built environment of the Botany Foreshore, which is one of the many reasons I was excited to bring James in. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you very much, John, and it's a great uh, privilege to be part of this uh, Hillier lecture in 2020, and I thank you for the opportunity. It's been very fascinating to uh, hear the points of view of our fellow panelists this evening, large-scale urban development that's taken place around the Bay. Of course, in just a few moments, I can't go into all of this in great depth, but I just speaking from my own experience, I had um, an awareness at a very early age of a great controversy, which was involved in the siting of the Cornell oil refinery. And uh, the reason that I knew about this is I was fortunate to grow up um, in uh, suburban Sydney and the family next door with whom we were very close. The father was a most distinguished uh, public figure, Adiel Fraser, the chief county planner of the Cumberland County Council and the principal visionary behind the Greenbelt concept of the Cumberland County plan. Uh, it was a great, great idea, which came under attack almost immediately and in fact, the first erosion of the idea was the approval by the Carl, Carl Labor government in 1952 to build the oil refinery on the, de the designated greenbelt of the Cornell Peninsula. Interestingly enough, in 1954, when the bill came up in the Legislative Assembly, it was, it was a Liberal member, Eric Willis, who pointed out that the uh, government has flouted its own Cumberland County Council plan. The refinery was on land zoned as open space and rural areas under the plan. The 1960s controversy about extending the refinery. And um, at that point, uh, Ariel Fraser came, in strong, came out strongly opposed to it. And uh, there was also opposition, as was reported in the Herald, from the Vice Chancellor of Sydney University and the professors of anthropology, zoology, and botany. Well, the expansion went ahead. So uh, what we are seeing, of course, is the conflict of values. Embedded in this particular anecdote is a realization that a far deeper and wider form of activism is necessary to counter large-scale environmental degradation. These days, of course, that refinery is no longer refining hydrocarbons, it's a storage facility. But my own involvement with the area directly was part of that more radical period of the late 60s, early 70s, when uh, the environmental movement was strengthened by its strong connections with the labor movement, in particular, of course, the famous Green Band movement with the great, late great Jack Mundy behind that formidable alliance between, I guess, middle-class activists and working class concerned citizens who had power at that time. I got involved in the battle over Centennial Park in the upper reaches of the Botany Basin in the beautiful and wonderful park dedicated by Sir Henry Parks in, to mark the centennial of the Settler Society of New South Wales. And then the Haskin government proposed to sort of um, mark the bicentennial 
of the English occupation of Australia by sort of concreting it over. And there was a proposal to put a major Olympic sports complex on a combination of Moore Park and, and Centennial Park. And this was announced in this publicly after some very secret um, initial planning in uh, 1972. And a marvelous campaign was led by a great hero, I think, of the resident action movement of that time and subsequent decades. Professor Neil Runcie, Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales, dedicated member and leader of the Save the Parks campaign and also a operational uh, figure in community radio. The proposal was to put stadiums on to remove all the fig trees of uh, Anzac Parade. And you'd think that this couldn't possibly happen. And luckily it was stopped. But in fact, the fight over just these same issues continues almost to the present day. Uh, it radicalized Patrick White, who spoke publicly. And I got involved in writing a form of environmental history, uh, interestingly enough, as in a sense, an early conservation plan to looking into the, uh, of the parklands and its surrounding suburbs. What I discovered very early on was a marvelous report by a senior geologist of the Geological Survey of New South Wales, uh, Russell Griffin, who sadly died at a very young age, uh, on the Botany Basin. And this um, excited me to see the interrelationship between all these open space areas stretching down from the Moore Park and Centennial Park remnants of Governor Macquarie's Sydney Common of 1811, but down through the uh, water reserves of um, the Lachlan and Botany Swamps, down through the various golf courses, race courses, public parks, universities, our own university sites, and so on. And uh, the mapping of all of this was uh, exquisitely done in that early report. Clear to me that here was, in fact, an potentially an integrated parks system that our city should have always had. And uh, we can contrast it to, for example, the famous Emerald Necklace Park system in Boston, designed by Frederick Lerombstead, the landscape architect for Central Park. If only we could think of the integration of those remarkable green resources that form part of the ecological system that feeds into the bay, both in its stream systems, its stormwater, Finally, at a very large scale, uh, Mark Tyrrell picking up on the work of an early one of my students, Barbara Schaffer, looking at the overall metropolitan area and combining the hydrological system and the green systems to propose a green grid of integrated uh, green resources for the uh, metropolitan district. And it's going back to basically where we were with the vision of the green belt of Fraser in 1948 to surround Botany Bay with green. And when we look at the large scene of those large scale interventions, major uh, ports and airport facilities and heavy industry, nevertheless, there have been heroic and magnificent fights that have inspired uh, designers to respond to the environmental challenges of Botany Bay. And I hope that the our university will continue to run these studios to uh, engage students with this level of thinking. Thank you. Thank you so much, James. And I, I think it's so easy to sort of focus on what we have at risk when we are thinking about social and environmental issues. 
uh, but I really appreciate the, the way that these studios think about what do we have to gain, particularly by thinking about how to integrate the more than human environment into our human environments. Um, and so I think there's a there's a much needed utopianism there that I, I do appreciate. So our final panelist and expert tonight is Sharon Cullis. Sharon uh, grew up in Southeast Sydney on the Georges River floodplain and has a fascination with water and water issues ever since. She's a professional educator and was for 20 years the principal of the Georges River Environmental Education Center. Since the 1990s, she's been a ministerial appointment to various bodies, including the Georges River, River Cashment Management Committee and the Sydney Metropolitan Cashment Management Authority. She currently represents environmental interests on the community consultative committees for the Bowie Seam Longwell Mining Project and the Moorbank Intermodal Transport Hub. She has completed a PhD recently about the controversy around coal mining impacts on water resources in 2020. And the title of her thesis, Fractured Landscapes and Narratives of New South Wales Southern Coal Fields, aptly reflects the meanings of her research. Thank you so much, Sharon, for joining us this evening and sharing your research and perspectives. I'd like to say thank you to all the other panellists because I feel so humble because I've learned so much tonight. So let me see if I can share my screen though and get right into this. So desktop, yes. So beginning here, landscape protection stretches back and forward through time, I believe. So I acknowledge the role of the traditional owners of the land they share with us these days. From the Upper Georges, which is Tuggeroy, to Kamei, which is Botany Bay. Also, I must mention that my first awareness of the work of Nancy Hillier came via Dr. Paul Brown from the University of New South Wales, who spoke so positively of her work. And I feel Nancy certainly knew how to engage productively with universities and the knowledge that they produce. Tonight, I will concentrate on campaigns that I know best in other parts of the Bay, and also up the catchment, uh, particularly up the Georges River, referred to in this slide. I remember the work, and must acknowledge it, of uh, Bob Walsh, Bernie Clark, and Don Syme, who incidentally was a, a friend and colleague of Jack Mundy. They were legends too, just like Nancy. My academic work has been about two past campaigns. The first was the federal government's proposal to consider the Holsworthy Army Base as the site for the second Sydney airport. The second was the fight against coal mining under the Darawa Reserves, which are the headwaters of the Georges River and also part of the, the New South Wales Southern Coal Fields. That last campaign, Save Sydney's koalas is alive right now and in, is also in the headwaters of the Georges River. So this is the geographical context. Note the location of the holes where the army base in here. It's bushland are cut by deep gorges but surrounded by urban communities. Also note Darawal, the Georges River headwaters, which is now a national park, which is down here. It was threatened by the BHP mega mine proposal called the Bull Seam Operation around Appen and beyond. And also notice the Georges River Edge, the Upper Georges River Edge, which is the epicentre of a breeding and healthy koala population right now, which is under serious threats. First to the Holsworthy Airport option, being considered against Badgerys Creek at the time. 
A lot of people thought it was just a red herring, was just too ridiculous to be true. But my experience is a lot of ridiculous development proposals get approved all the time by governments. Anything can happen without a vigilant community present. It was a federal Liberal government proposal to consider it, an easy option in one sense because they owned the land. Basically, the opposition was united as there were many communities from Campbelltown to the west, Liverpool to Bankstown in the north and Sutherland to the east around the site. The combined councils and the state Labor government opposed it too and resourced it well. It was a very visible campaign and remarkably engaging. You don't get many rallies, many protest rallies of 15,000 people opposing a development project in the suburb of Moorbank, but this one did. People were united by their fear of the loss of their personal and family amenity, but also as well, the site was 20,000 hectares of mostly bushland that had been locked up for army manoeuvres since 1913. So it was relatively free of many kinds of damaging human um, uses like weed incursion, illegal rubbish dumping, timber getting. It was without trail, bike and four-wheel drive damage and it had many, many hundreds of Aboriginal sites. Looking back on it now, it was always a more winnable campaign than most. The proposal did fall over and Badgeries Creek became the only option. Now, um, thinking about it, isn't that developing into a debacle that just keeps giving? Okay, so moving on to Save Darawal, that campaign. So the threat to Darawal was the BHP proposal to Longmore Mine for 30 years into the future under 220 square kilometres of the landscape. And the project was known as the Bull Seam Operation. Longmore Mining is ruthlessly efficient in terms of coal recovery but has dreadful and known impacts, but also some unknown and unpredictable impacts on the high, rocky, rugged Warrenora Plateau, which is mostly within the drinking water catchments known as the metropolitan catchments just to the south of Sydney. The long walls underground cause subsidence of the surface above and buckling and even this strange phenomenon not known before it began to happen in 2004 called upsidence, where you can actually see the squeezing of the valley sides as subsidence is occurring, causes riverbanks already cracked by subsidence to pop up. So this slide is pretty much a summary of my two findings regarding the Darawal campaign. Examples of corporate capture were that the only science presented in the EIS documents by the proponent was science done by their consultants and by their staff. The supposed peer reviewers and even the decision makers on the Planning Assessment Commission, which was the Public Inquiry Commissioners, had histories of working for mining companies. I refer to the revolving door analogy too, and that applied particularly strongly to the PAC commissioners. They were trained as academics, they were academic experts that lectured at universities, they had technical science backgrounds, and then of course they moved into mining companies as either consultants or employees for a time to develop expertise and credibility in their industry, and that's to be expected. But then they became adjudicators on behalf of the government on these public inquiries. So within that kind of decision-making regime, though, was the role of 
a very fluid social and political landscape. The captured, arguably corrupt Labor state government of the time was about to fall. So even though those PAC adjudicators had favoured mining before in their decisions, always approving mining proposals, for this one they flipped and they ruled against it. They ruled against a mining proposal. I like to think that perhaps their personal ethics kicked in. They just knew that this proposal was just going to be far too damaging because they'd also had that really recent experience of what was happening in places like the Warrenora catchment where they had made those prior approvals. They could see the evidence themselves. Perhaps they were embarrassed by it. But as well, at the time, the state Liberal Party was about to win at the upcoming election and they could see the idea of a national park for South West Sydney would be a very appealing one. And they just took up that cause. That was politically very opportune of them. Uh, quite clearly, environmentally, they haven't done much since, have they? So, but essentially, um, for Darawal at the time, all the stars were in alignment. So what would I conclude about all of that? So pretty much these are my conclusions. My conclusions. In regards to this first point, um, networking is so important for activism. Um, and it's really important when activists can join together with unlike allies. It's really important to find common ground in campaigns. Um, for the second one, here's an illustration of how few activists can make a difference. For the Bull Seam Operation PAC, there were only about 70 submissions. Most of those were objections, but only 70. And there were uh, only around about 20 verbal presenters at the inquiry. Again, most of those were, uh, were objections, but it still is a very small number at a public inquiry. Just by way of comparison, the most recent IPC, which is the Independent Planning Commission, which is today today's equivalence of the PAC, for the Russell Vale Long War Mining Extension, also in the southern coal fields and in the Cataract Dam catchment, had many hundreds of submissions and more than 80 presenters at the public inquiry. And yet I believe that will not make a difference. The decision is still pending, but because of the political landscape, it's unlikely to make a difference, even though you've got such a strong, such a strong indication of a far greater level of public opposition. With regard to the next two points, too many diffuse arguments. When a campaign is being organised and developed, I think people getting together and being part of activist groups probably need to think about making sure that they have a simple shared message that, that is often repeated and becomes that sort of common thread through their opposition because otherwise it's far too easy for the government to basically be confused and see so many nuanced different views as a reason why there is no consensus in the community and so therefore ignore the community. Um, in regards to the role, I guess, of universities, technical science is respected or is certainly co-opted, captured, used often by uh, mining giants and, you know, developers of infra infrastructure projects and so on. So technical science can be very easily harnessed in, harnessed in the interests of development. 
But it's very important for perhaps activists to understand that there's plenty of opportunities for them to be assisted if they can draw on, you know, strong interdisciplinary analysis that's available through universities. And I guess that's what I see as a very important role that we should be perhaps focusing on tonight. In the end, politics is is very important. Politics and the social context is very important, as important as science is in determining decision-making. My very last point is that um, corporate and political power is getting better at deflecting and misdirecting dissent. And I actually think at the moment the odds are stacked very much against activism. Um, If you're trying to defend the environment, it seems really, really hard. A really good example of of that is that sort of online device that the government's using all all of the time, and that's the have your say style of community consultation, which is online. It's dreadful. It shields and hides politicians and policymakers from accountability and from just that face-to-face contact with activism, activism and activists. So that's pretty much all I have to say. Thank you so much, Sharon. That, and a, a wonderful uh, set of lessons, practical uh, and theoretical, to bring to, to activists. And also just a really lovely example of where we can find successes. Um, I just wanted to say I really enjoyed the presentations and I've learned a lot. I also wondered from you, John, is is this going to be, I see it's being being recorded, is it going to be available to the participants to, uh, because there are many things that I, for example, in James' address, there was a lot of fascinating material that I would like to look at. This is being recorded. Uh, the plan is to share it both on UNSW's online platforms and Bayside Councils. There's been some talk, I can't guarantee this, of actually being able to, to show the lecture in public spaces in Bayside. Also, the Climatic podcast, which covered last year's Nancy Hillier lecture, will, will also be distributing this year a recording of this year's lecture as well in podcast form. So. Uh, if there are people you know who'd be interested in this who didn't have the opportunity to participate tonight, please know there'll be an opportunity to do so. That's very good. Uh, I just had a specific question of Sue Helen about the uh, distribution of biodiversity in the Bay. The two sites which were which were shown were pretty much in the eastern and southern uh, parts of the Bay. I wondered whether she could comment on on studies of the biodiversity and uh, problems in the areas around the airport and the port where the uh, pollution load is actually, I think, higher. Thanks, Pat. So the particular study was uh, directed mostly at looking at um, a subset. We were lucky to have those two samples in Botany Bay. The project was actually around Australia-wide um, and chosen primarily because they were sites that we were working at um, already. I do think having more nuanced sites would actually be a really, really cool thing to do. There's a group working at UTS that were doing a project looking at microbial diversity closer to the port. Um, and taking like sort of, I I think, weekly samples. And you're totally right. It is 
impacted by pollution, particularly stormwater runoff and, and sewage runoff. Yeah. Um, can't speak broadly for biodiversity generally, but when I was doing a little bit of reading um, around uh, not just microbial diversity, but also looking at other biodiversity, it seems reasonable to suggest areas of the bay where there is a lot more flushing of the water are actually in line or not, if not better than less developed bays around. So I think we actually have quite a big opportunity and it would be interesting to look again at, at more specific nuanced granular sites. Do you mean by that the areas of which is more um, obvious tidal movement? Do you yeah, mean? water movement. So water basically to, to relieve that sedimentation and, and flush any sort of pollution. Yeah. I'm not speaking about like uh, groundwater sediment pollution long term. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, and James too. I just want to see all those maps again, James. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> oh, that's fine, uh, Ian. It's, uh, it's great to uh, be connecting like this, and we we really should be closer in, in our in our university than we. That's we've exactly ever been. right, isn't it? It's so so hard when careers are actually established on particular lines of specialisation. It's very hard to get to get out of more or in in my field in, in area interests, and so I've had to work on the Cooks River as a kind of uh, like a retirement project. I started working on it about twenty five years ago, but it's only really since I retired that I really got stuck into it in a major way because I was constantly being asked to write something on, on another in another completely different geographic field. Yes. I have a beloved colleague uh, from a prior institution, Melinda Harm Benson, who's a wonderful scholar, and she used a topographical analogy. She said, in academia, we are rewarded for climbing the highest, most unexplored peaks but the most interesting work is actually happening below in the fertile valleys. Yeah, I think that uh, an opportunity like tonight to sort of look at the overlaps between our fertile valleys are, are really important. I just got a question from an audience member, Tim Cribb, who mm -hmm. says, hi Sharon, when you say you think the odds are stacked against activists in the current environment, do you think that there's been a significant change in the form in which activism is taking via social media, et cetera, in recent years? Perhaps the broader range has diluted the message across such a broad range of sources and in turn reduced its efficiency. Or do you think it's driven by a more fundamental shift in terms of increased support to privatization, et cetera? Super question, Tim. Sharon, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if anybody else in the panel has an opinion about how sort of the shifting terrain around environmental activism and change making has impacted things, I'd love to hear that as well. Actually, there's so many different aspects to that question that it's actually difficult to digest. I'm wondering whether anyone else wants to start. But what I would say is there are huge differences between the campaigns that I have studied in the past and the way in which campaigns are operated now. And it's quite clearly because there's been pretty much a collapse in, say, suburban media and the ability of um, a lot of suburban activists to access suburban media, media was so important in the past because they could get their messages across through the local newspapers that are either very, very thin these days and dominated by advertising or alternatively they've just shut down. So that's been a problem. And in its place, of course, you've got the rise of Facebook groups and all of that. And what we tend to do, though, 
with a lot of when you start causes and start pages and operate through Facebook when you're trying to do activism, more often than not, you're only um, you're within your own echo chamber, and you find the people who think exactly as you do, and you're talking to them all the time, and. Um, it's probably good because it makes you feel as though you're part of a group and there's people who care. But the really important thing is to be able to connect to the mainstream. Whenever you want to win a campaign, you've got to work out a way of making the messages of your campaign connect to everyone else who will make a difference electorally. You know, you're only going to get decisions made by politicians if they feel there's strong support in the mainstream for a particular environmental value. So that's probably not really answered the question, but let me think about the rest of it. But activism is taking place in social media. A lot of it's exceptionally passive. Not only are we in our own echo chambers, but the other problem is we think if we just sign a petition or tick a box somewhere, you know, or support a get up campaign or whatever it is, we think we've done it. And I would say that that's insufficient. I get troubled by that echo chamber quite a lot. Um, I'm actually not on social media personally, stepped away from it. I keep it just for those school contacts, you know, Um, but I was very much aware of that. I'm also worried about that misinformation and that lack of really analytical thinking, again, coming from that science background, that's just not there anymore because maybe as a result of that or other measures, I'm not too sure. Um, do you have any solutions of, of what would make, how do we break out of that and how do we make change in the current climate? Anyone, maybe? Don't jump all at once. <laughs> Could I say something? I'll say something because I think it's really important. You've got to, you've got to remember the value of um, yourself as a person who can start a conversation. And I think, you know, when things got really desperately hard, because I was both an activist and also a researcher in the Save Darawal campaign, and I think what I began to understand is people need to still have conversations within their networks that are their social networks that are are not their activist networks. You need to make friends and find friends outside and you've got to continue to believe in the power of face-to-face communication. Like we're very lucky to have digital means of connecting because we wouldn't be able to do this tonight if we didn't have this. But it's we've got to remember you still need to connect. So I think somewhere in one of my slides I had that sort of idea of operating on levels like, you know, the local level. Remember we still do tend to live in villages. So you need to keep talking somehow to everybody in your neighbourhood. <laughs> you know, when you feel powerless, sometimes that's all you have, particularly when you've done everything else, like you've written four letters to Rob Stokes about overdevelopment. And, of course, you know, you've got the same standard stock reply each time. Um, so you're understanding that the politicians aren't listening to you because they can label you a greenie anyway. All you can do is find other people to talk to about those issues and hope that you can extend your influence. In terms of that other issue of, um, unfortunately, science and critical thinking is not so much part of the equation so much anymore when you're operating very quickly. If you're using Twitter and if you're using Facebook and Instagram, of course, there's no time to do 
rigorous scientific analysis of things through those mechanisms. So the universities need to work out ways of dealing with that issue. That's what I would say. One of the reasons why we're here tonight is to work out ways in which universities and those engaged in social sciences and in interdisciplinary studies can connect with people, people to raise the bar in terms of um, analysis, critical thinking and analysis. Isn't that the big challenge here? It's, it's really terrible that we're struggling with an answer to that because we should be providing the answer, I think. Yeah, I think it's the pace you just pointed out the pace and, and where that's coming from, where the incentive, um, I'm not a journalist, but, you know, I hear that the idea of investigative journalism, for example, doesn't actually, oh, I won't say not exist, but <laughs> is not as existent as it used to be. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the one, two things I'd throw out there. Um, one thing that I found encouraging when I was looking at coming to UNSW, um, every institution has its issues, um, but the shift to have social impact is part of the way that academics are evaluated. So Rob Brander over in Bees, a colleague of Sue Allen's, I had this great conversation with him. He said, you know, I'm a professor right now because there was a willingness to take a look at the social impact work I've done. He's done a bunch of work around public safety, around riparian areas. He's done as Dr. Rip. Um, I think so. so pushing institutions to take Seriously, the opportunity for people to do that kind of good work is important. And the thing that I'd offer as well, on top of what Sharon was offering, is that that person-to-person impact, I think, really is huge. And one of the, it's very, can be labor-intensive, but I'm always inspired by the Proposition 8 movement in California. I don't know if you heard about it in Australia, but when there was a proposition to ban um, same-sex marriage, there's this move for people to literally go door-to-door and talk to people individually, where that experience of dealing with a human and hearing their stories and perspectives, finding out what their values are, and then telling your own story about why something matters, I think has a lot of power. And and my sense is the part of what made Nancy Hillier's work so powerful, she she had that energy and that drive to talk to people and, and make that personal connection. Social media is wonderful. Zoom, please don't disconnect our meeting yet. I love you, Zoom. But right, so much of politics, so much of advocacy, so much of education, so much of research is a contact sport. Um, and I, my hope is that if anything, this period of COVID-based digital interconnection leaves us with an even greater thirst for and appreciation for in-person politics and research and citizen science and discussion and discourse. But that may just be my my utopian sound. One of the things that really strikes me when we think about botany is how its history um, and the history of its catchment is sort of a sacrifice zone continues to influence our prospects today. Ian described it as the place where everything got dumped. And I think that that when we think about the human side, the social side, the threats to sort of social diversity, the threats to biological diversity, how do we change the story around botany? How do we change the story from this being the place where everything got dumped, the, the sacrifice zone, the place where the 
heavy industry was, the place where, well, of course there's a port there, so why not put the cruise ship there? How do we change the story about Bach? It's very hard to say. Um, it, I mean, I, academics can't really do anything without the, without the social changes more or less coinciding with what they're trying to do. Um, I mean, the inner city has become much more a sort of trendy place to live. The urban environment in that area has improved somewhat. It still has quite a few uh, problems, but it, it's as that, that social change has uh, enabled that area of the inner city, and I would include large sections of the, of the Cooks River Valley in that, eastern suburbs as well. Um, th these areas have become much more uh, trendy places to live. I mean, Alexandria is quite, quite considered quite a good place to live now. Um, for example, that was part of the uh, of the uh, Cook River. Still, is part of the Cook River catchment uh, via the Alexandra Canal. Uh, but all those areas, all those areas have gone up. But I don't think it's really been anything that um, activists have done. Activists have stopped a lot of things from happening over the years. But governments have just got better and better over time at kind of uh, incorporating uh, environmentalism in a way that means that it looks like that they're responding, but they're actually not. Um, it's harder to it's harder to to put forward a positive vision, uh, and we're seeing this when we come up against the really big issue of today, which is climate change, which of course is referred to in terms of the of the rising sea levels, which affects the rivers uh, as much as it does the bay itself. These, these are it's a really big issue in which a majority of the people appear to be concerned about it, and yet they vote for a government which is determined not to do anything substantive to deal with the issue, but to appear to deal with it in some way, by some subterfuge, which is what has really happened since 2013 in particular. I mean, I sign a lot of petitions and give money to people here, there, etc. I've been involved in marches. I'm not an activist, but I know a lot of us, a lot of us are very frustrated with the fact that even though there appears to actually be a majority of people who, who are, are really concerned about this issue, that, that uh, nothing seems to happen, that we're sleepwalking our way towards, towards doomsday as far as the climate is concerned. Um, one of the reasons for this is a lot of those people who are, who are supposedly um, worried about climate change are actually not prepared to change the basic fundamentals of their own lives. Unless we can get a majority of people who not only have some concern about it, but are prepared to actually engage in social change themselves, we're not likely to achieve too much to save the world, indeed, not just Botany Bay from the uh, rather gloomy future that lies in front of us. John, I'm just wondering if I can make a quick point to add to something that's already been mentioned about citizen science and also to tie it in with, with what this panel is essentially, which is uh, uh, the story of connectedness between academia and the community. I can see that... Um, the, the, the trends in citizen science are becoming uh, more and more collaborative all the time. I mean, it used to be an enterprise where a scientist would basically assign a whole lot of work to a, a group of people based on what that scientist thought that group of people could help them with. 
But I'm starting to see a, a lot more collaborative work where the impulse to make new knowledge about uh, an issue is, is coming from the grassroots. And I'd, I'd just add to what's been said by suggesting that um, maybe in academia, one thing we, we should always be doing as we embark upon a research program is asking ourselves, how can we co-produce this knowledge with members of the community that have the most vested interest in, in how that knowledge is deployed? And there's another big advantage of it, and that is that citizen scientists uh, will be inclined to um, carry on research projects across vast timescales, gen uh, across generations, uh, whereas academic research projects, sometimes governed by ARC grants, of course, um, are relatively short-lived compared to the knowledge building that's needed in uh, tackling some of the big issues. Uh, and so I, I think if, if that was a credo, if you like, for, um, for academic research, uh, th that it should be done as co-production with community, it serves both the development of knowledge itself but also is in itself a, a, an act of campaigning because it enlarges the network of people involved in addressing issues. Thank you, thank you. And, and in case any of you didn't recognize, this is Paul Brown, my predecessor and the original organizer uh, of the Hillier Lecture. And I think that's a really spectacular point about how you get people engaged and how that, that in many ways the university can be a spark to that deeper engagement. To, to comment on the citizen science aspect, I agree with you. There has been the caveat though, that as a research scientists, we're basically, you know, getting other people to do our job for us and we'll be out of a job. Um, there's, there's that element to it, which I think has been um, teetered around a bit. But I, I think certain projects are very, very much in tune for that to actually engage the community and they should be then incorporated as part of that. And also given some research around that topic, so how successful is that in terms of the objectives of engagement with the community, rather than just saying we got, as you pointed out, Paul, we got a bunch of the community members together to go and collect some samples um, and take some photographs of something. But I, I do think it can work if it's from the very beginning also thought of as a community sort of effort and resources are put towards it beyond just thinking of them as volunteers. Maybe we can wrap up with one more question that came from our audience. Uh, Laura McLaughlin, who's actually a part of the Environment Society group and a wonderful educator and scholar. She asks, how can we overcome the physical disconnections and dislocation in the botany area? For example, the way that roads, et cetera, impede a sense of community belonging. I'll throw that out to, to the entire group because I think we are starting to think in these terms of how do we get people engaged, whether it's through the form of activism or citizen science or other forms of change making? Is there something specific about the physical environment of botany that creates either particular challenges or particular openings? Well, I'll say something then. <laughs> I'll be quick. I think Laura's question, I'm just reading it again, raises the opportunity we now all have in the, in the year of the pandemic. To, to just think very deeply about that kind of um, community organisation, which I guess many of us have, have encountered on our own streets as, as people do respond to the pandemic. But it's starting to raise different ways of thinking about uh, community mobilisation 
Uh, I don't think we know what those are yet, but uh, we're, we're living through the, the evolution of those. And, and Laura's question goes to, to that as well. Well, I think that another clear direction that's coming out of the experience of the pandemic is that people are spending time in their community. And, and it is, uh, at its best, a form of network of urban villages. And, uh, and so I think that the engagement and um, love of their place um, is, is becoming part of everybody's life in a big way, as distinct from the more detached distance before uh, our, um, our necessity to be at home. And so I think in addition, I think open space has become very important to people. And um, I think what, what really connects uh, all that perhaps we've been talking about in a physical way is water and the way that water flows from its catchment down into this glorious bay. And I must say, uh, Sue Ellen, that the underwater revelations are just fabulous to see. To think that that um, extraordinary biodiversity and richness has survived everything we've thrown at it is in itself uh, inspirational. Recognizing, of course, that the threats are very, very real. And I re really think that the way that uh, government has manipulated the environmental movement and the sustainability issues in general uh, have been um, requires very, very critical engagement. And that's the role of the university, and which I hope we're still uh, able to deliver on. But uh, I think that uh, the, the, the something of value has come out of the pandemic, and that is people's engagement with their place. And uh, I hope that that might motivate and inspire this new community that's emerging within the catchment that uh, Ian is talking about. Which are perhaps perfect closing words for this, uh, particularly as we think about how inspirational uh, the presence and our engagement with the, the waters, not just of Botany Bay and its catchment are. And uh, with that, I would like to thank you all, particularly your willingness to go on over. Thank you to our audience members who have come and engaged. And thank you for, for this opportunity to kind of speak across and, and through these different disciplinary lenses that we bring. I was very excited when Paul gave me the opportunity to, to organize a Hillier lecture because this is exactly the kind of beginnings of new connections that I've been looking forward to. Uh, even just with our, our initial technical run through, uh, there's this wonderful set of conversations between Anne-Marie and Sharon about the, the limits of planning, having uh, this magnificent uh, biological scientist talking to a legendary environmental historian. For me, this is how we put the universe back in the university. And it's, and it's with these small steps, but important steps, I think, that we start to continue the work that needs to be done for botany at Sydney and beyond. So thank you all for participating. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank everybody for braving the strange wilderness that is an online Zoom meeting. And I will look forward to continuing these conversations, both uh, digitally and hopefully soon in person, and look forward to continuing our conversation as the annual Nancy Hillier Memorial Lecture continues. Thank you again. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. All the panelists. Thank you, everyone. Yes. Very good. Nice to meet Take you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Thank you. Fantastic night. You have been listening to a podcast on the Climactic Collective, the podcast network for Australia's climate community. To find out more about us and all the shows on the network, visit climactic.com.au. The Climactic Collective.